The Robert Wesley Brand Show, a round table of wisdom where people from all across the planet, from all walks of life, and from all religious and sacred traditions, convene for spiritual conversation. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. On the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, I decided to do an exercise that would help my students to understand racism. I tried to make a difference. I'm still trying to make that difference. Is there anyone in the United States that we do not treat as our brothers? Yeah. Who? Yeah. The, black yeah. the black people. How are black people treated? How are Indians treated? How are people who are of a different color than we are treated? Like they, like they are part of this world. They don't get anything in this world. Why is that? Because they're different colors. I feel people need this because we are still doing now what we were doing in the 50s. Is there anything about you people that is different from one another that we could use to make part of you? Okay, we could use the color of your eyes. How many in here have blue eyes? Okay, how many in here have brown eyes? It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? I'm trying to get the people who participate in this exercise the opportunity to find out how it feels to be something other than white in this society. All right, people, I'm Jane Elliott. I'm your resident bitch for the day, and make no mistake about that. That's exactly what this is about. I do this in a mean, nasty way because racism, sexism, ageism, Homophobia, ethnocentrism are mean and nasty. Today, I am here because I have been asked to do an exercise in discrimination based on eye color. Now, the purpose of this exercise is to give these nice, blue-eyed, white kids the opportunity to spend about an hour and a half to two hours on the receiving end of the treatment which we mete out to people of color on a daily basis in this country. They're in a blue-eyed holding room right now. They are not eating, they are not drinking. There are three chairs in there for 12 people. We're going to bring these people in here. You're going to treat them as though they're inferior because they are inferior. Everybody understand that? They're not going to learn because they can't learn and because we're going to set it up so they can't learn. And if they succeed, who has failed? We have. You people want to fail? No. If they get power, who loses power? We do. You want to lose power? No, we're going to accuse them of not being as smart as we are. We're going to accuse them as not, of not being as clean as we are. We're going to lower our expectations for them. We're going to force them to live down to our expectations of them. And when they do, we're going to blame their inability to perform on the color of their eyes. Now, in order to get them in their chat, into their adult ego state, we're going to try to teach them the listening skills. Now, what do we call men that we want to keep in their childlike state? Boy. We're going to call these males boy. You're not going to use their given name. You're going to call them boy. Or you're going to call them bluey. Or you're going to call them fool. <laughs> now, people, what do we call women besides chicks? Honey. Baby. Gal. Doll face. Doll. Dumpling. We are going to give them no respect. 
How many of you have friends in that group? Let me put it this way. How many of you used to have friends in that group? Because some of these people are going to leave here very angry. White people's number one freedom in the United States of America is the freedom to be totally ignorant about those who are other than white. We don't have to learn about those who are other than white. And our number two freedom is the freedom to deny that we're ignorant. Today, we're going to take away these people's freedom to be ignorant. I want you to understand how the system works. And believe me, this is how the system works. We make laws to support white superiority and to reinforce white superiority. And when you catch on to how it works, then we change the laws. I didn't invent this exercise. I learned this from Adolf Hitler. One of the ways they decided who went into the gas chamber was eye color. This exercise is not without precedent. So here we go. Come on in from your world and listen. He's the same man, same message, same mission. He's channeling the cosmos on mystic and soul. He's ringing the power and sharing the wisdom that never, never gets old. I'm talking about Robert Wesley Branch. He don't mind taking a chance. Robert Wesley Branch, he's here with his crew. So be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Robert Wesley Branch Show. Mm-hmm. Happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Saturday morning to you. I'm Robert Wesley Branch. Welcome to our space today. I'm glad you are here. You were listening to Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott is a retired third grade school teacher from Iowa. And I first heard about Jane Elliott back in 1992 while watching the Oprah Winfrey Show. Take a listen. I'm so excited about my next guest. She says, you know, all white people are raised with some racist beliefs, even though they may not want to admit it. That's what she says. Jane Elliott says it's possible, though, to recondition racist beliefs. Jane is a former teacher and nationally rec recognized expert on race relations. And I don't know, but many years ago, when we were still a local talk show here in Chicago, Jane was on the show, and we did, those of you in Chicago might know this, those of you watching Chicago, we did an experiment with Jane uh, that she's done this for many, many years. She's done it for corporations and universities across the country. It's the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experience, or blue-eyed, green-eyed experiment, where you have the... Explain the experiment, Jane, please. You separate groups according to eye color, and you place those who have the wrong color eyes in the position in which we place minority group members and women in this society, and gays, and people with disabilities. And most of the people that I work with are white, so-called adult males. And those blue-eyed white males, when they are placed in the situation in which they are treated the way women and people of color are treated in this country, react exactly the way women and people of color react in this country. They get angry. Angry. I have been threatened with death numerous times. I've been hit by a white male during this exercise. I've had a knife pulled on me. And these are all white males who say they wouldn't have a problem if it happened to them. 
Brown-eyed people are responsible for the fact that you have electricity. All the many of the components for generating and transmitting electricity were invented by brown-eyed people. Brown-eyed people gave us our alphabet. Brown-eyed people gave us our numeration system. Brown-eyed people gave us the paper on which we write these anonymous letters to me that tell me that brown-eyed people are inferior. Brown-eyed people are the ones who originated or who founded every major religion on this earth. No white people have ever founded a major religion. Now you need to realize the contributions that have been made to society, to civilization, by brown-eyed people, by people of color. I'm talking about people of color here, folks. And most of us are not aware of those things because we live in a racist society and because we are educated by a racist school system that only teaches us about white contributions. And that's a fact. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. If we would start telling the truth in schools, we would not have racism. We could cure racism in this country. Somebody said, I heard somebody... I heard somebody in the green room say that racism is inbred. No, it is not. Racism is not part of the human condition. Racism is a learned response. You have to be taught to be a racist. You are not born racist. You are born into a racist society. And like anything else, if you can learn it, you can unlearn it. But people like this choose not to unlearn it because they're afraid they will lose power if they share it with other people. We are afraid of sharing power. That's what it's all about. That's the reason men won't share power with women because they are afraid they will lose power. People, if we would share power, we would empower many people so that we would all be more powerful. Racism was defined by the Joint Council on Mental, President's Joint Council on Mental Health in Children in 1959 as being the number one mental health problem among children in the United States. And they didn't say among black children, they said among children. If you judge other people by the color of their skin, by the amount of a chemical in their skin, you have a mental problem. You are not dealing well with reality. Okay, so, Jane, what I think we also need to explain, and I think our next show, we should do that, our next show. How many of you would be willing to participate in the brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment? Yeah. Okay, good. We'll have you back one day. We'll do it. Uh, um, you people like to suffer, don't you? Yeah, like to suffer. It's, it's, it's so interesting. Even though you know it's an experiment, it become, people get so crazed in the midst of it. I think you need to explain something that I think uh, maybe got not heard as well as it should have, Jane. Jane said just a few minutes ago that if you were raised white in America and you are not prejudiced, then you would be a miracle. It would be a miracle to not be prejudiced. And explain what you meant by that. It would mean that the school system had failed because the school system in this country is about maintaining the status quo. And in this country, it is white supremacy. That is one of the things we teach in the schools. The school system in this country is about maintaining the status quo. And in this country, it is white supremacy. That is one of the things we teach in the school, says and said Jane Elliott on that Oprah show back in 1992. Now, you heard Oprah mention that they would do an experiment, do Jane's experiment, with members of the audience. Well, I remember about a day or two or maybe the following week, they did just that. Take a listen. 
Today's audience was separated into two groups. Not on the color of their skin were they separated when they arrive. They were separated based on the color of their eyes. But they have no idea that they were separated. What we did was treat each group differently, discriminating against the people who have blue eyes, catering to those people with brown eyes. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Look over your eyes. Blue, over there, put it on. No, 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 over there. The blue-eyed people were pulled out of line, told to put on a green collar and wait outside. When the brown-eyed people arrived, they were told to step to the front of the line. Audience members with brown eyes were allowed to enjoy coffee and donuts. The blue-eyed group became upset when they saw the brown-eyed people were being seated first. Diversity expert Jane Elliott helped set up the experiment. I've been a teacher for 25 years in the public, private, and parochial schools in this country, and I have seen what brown-eyed people have done as compared to what blue-eyed people do. And it's perfectly obvious. And if I didn't believe it before this morning, you should have been here this morning when we brought these people in here. Feeling discriminated against, the blue-eyed audience members were visibly upset. She was rude to us, rude. all of us. Yelled at us, called us names, pushed us aside. She was rude. This one is say, why doesn't Jane have a green collar on? She she's got say, blue eyes. Because I've learned to act brown-eyed. I have a brown-eyed husband and three brown-eyed children. Why did you? And the message in this room is, act brown-eyed and you, too, can take off your collar. Act intelligently oh, and you, too, won't on. lose your collar. That's, None of you have, have acted intelligently yet. It wasn't long before the brown-eyed people bought into the idea that they were superior. You people... in school who was blue-eyed. She was so stupid. She was always copying off of my papers. These people were so rude and so noisy today, we couldn't hear any ourselves even talk. It was ridiculous. Eventually, the audience figured out the show was really about race. Now, he was so angry, he took off his collar way on early. How many of you people of color can take off the collar that we have put on you? How many of you can take off your color? But if a black male refuse to follow your orders or your husband's orders or your father's orders on the street, you would not see that as being highly principled. You would see him as being an uppity nigger. Well, we can see where this is going. She's saying that everybody has racism in them. It's not really about the eye. She's trying to teach about racism. But she can't get away from the fact that God created the races and you are going to be different. You can't help it. God to be like that. one race, the human race, and human beings created racism. We're going to talk about that. God created one race, the human race, and human beings created racism. That's what Jane Elliott said on the Oprah show back in 1992. So if that's true, brothers and sisters, if God created one race, the human race, and human beings created racism, how did we human beings do that? How did we and how do we? create racism. Take a listen. Martin Luther King was one of our heroes of the month in February, every year, mm -hmm. along with, unfortunately, George Washington, who owned slaves, bought and sold people for money, mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln, who refused to free the slaves, mm -hmm. Davy Crockett, who, was, who died while he was killing, killing off Mexicans while we tried to take over part of their land. Mm -hmm. That was racist teaching. I would not have accused myself of teaching racism, but I did. That was the curriculum that you taught. Mm -hmm. I taught the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So what I was doing was not educating. I was indoctrinating. Mm -hmm. That's what we do in the schools in this country. We call it education, but we indoctrinate students. We teach them how to be good Americans. 
we teach them a lie in order to guarantee that they're going to be good Americans. And they believe the lie. What's the lie? The lie is the superiority of white people. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. I didn't. I think maybe we, I thought we had stopped until I talked to my seventh-grade granddaughter in Washington State a year ago. They were learning about the Williams massacre, in which, as she as she explained it to me, a, a group of Indians killed a white missionary. I said, "Is your teacher going to tell you about the Mountain Meadow massacre?" She said, "What's the Mountain Meadow, Meadow massacre?" I said, "It's when the Mormons." sent a group of Mormons out to kill all the members of a wagon train that were coming through Utah. They, they killed every member of that except one young girl, I think, may, survived. The soldiers went out, found these cavalry went out, and found this wagon train with all these dead people, knew that the Indians hadn't done it, talked to the Mormons, and they said, yes, we did it. I said, ask your teacher if he's going to tell you about the Mountain Meadow Massacre. She called me the next week and said, Grammy, you got me in a lot of trouble. I said, what happened? She said, I, I raised my hand and asked if we're going to learn about the Mountain Meadow Massacre. And the teacher took me out in the hall and said, Grace, we don't talk about that in this school. I can't teach you that because if I did, you wouldn't be a good American. You wouldn't love America anymore. I went ballistic. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not teaching. This is not education. The word education, to educate some, someone means to be in the act of leading them out of ignorance. You don't do that by indoctrinating them. That child was being indoctrinated. That made it tough for that teacher after that because what he said no longer had fact behind it. She didn't, she didn't believe him as much anymore, and she shouldn't have. We call it education, but we indoctrinate students. We teach them how to be good Americans. We teach them a lie in order to guarantee that they're going to be good Americans. And they believe the lie. And the lie is the superiority of white people. It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie, says Jane Elliott. And that was from the Rock Newman Show. Some of you are familiar with Rock. He has a show that airs in the Washington, D.C. area on WHUT, which is Howard University Television, a PBS affiliate. That particular show, where that clip came from, was on May 25th, 2016, The Rock Newman Show, if you want to look that up. And what Jane Elliott said is this, to educate someone, I had never heard it put this way before, to educate someone is to be in the act of leading them out of ignorance. And you don't do that by indoctrinating them. And that, brothers and sisters, leads us to our conversation this morning, a continuation of the Evolution of You series that we've been doing over the last year. Today is part six, education or indoctrination. We create racism, not by education, but by indoctrination. Take a listen. If you read the book, uh, Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith, everybody should read that book because it tells you where this thing got started. But first you need to read the myth of race and realize that there's only one race on the face of the earth. You and I are members of the same race. We all have the same great, 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 great grandmother, and she was a black woman. So if we could just get over the idea of there being a number of different races, we could, we could solve this problem. We could teach. We could educate people instead of indoctrinating them. It has not been good for us. White people think it has been good for us. It has not. 
our topic today, education or indoctrination, which I think is particularly relevant, not only understanding what happens to children and young adults within the American educational system, but also for us grown-ass people that are out here every day consuming mass media, watching television, listening to radio, and receiving information from the Internet. Are we being educated or are we being indoctrinated by the information upon which we are feeding on a daily basis. Take a listen. How many of you send Christmas cards? Well, I send Christmas cards. You want to send fewer? Oh, wait, I'll tell you how to do that. Go down to the store, buy a box of Christmas cards with the Holy Family on it, take it home, and color them right. Jesus did not look like the little Pillsbury Doughboy. Mary did not have blonde hair, blue eyes, and pale skin. They were in the Middle East, and she was a Middle Easterner. And in the Bible, it says Jesus had feet of bronze and kinky woolly hair. Color them right. Send out your Christmas cards. Next year, you'll only have to send out a third as many because you won't get many Christmas cards. Mm-hmm. We don't, when you sit in a Methodist church, as I did for years, and you look at that brown, light brown hair on that picture of Jesus at the front of the church, and then you get those Christmas cards. And you think, how does anybody believe this nonsense? How long can we perpetuate this myth? We'll perpetuate it as long as white people have the numbers and the power to do that. And we have that now. As long as white people determine the curriculum, it will be a curriculum that teaches the rightness of whiteness. And you ascribe that to a sinister motive? I ascribe that to ignorance. I ascribe that to ignorance. You believe what the teacher says. My dad said, you behave in school. If you make a fuss in school, you'll get it when you get home. Behave yourself in school. Learn what you have to learn. Pass those tests. So that's what you do. You don't question. If you question, you aren't going to pass the test. So you don't question. That's what we teach people to conform. You believe what the teacher says. You don't question. We teach people to conform says Jane Elliott, speaking there again on The Rock Newman Show from May 25th, 2016. You don't question. One of the definitions of the word indoctrination is this. The process of teaching a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. Keyword, uncritically. So today we are going to take a deep dive into the whole question of education or indoctrination. Education or indoctrination. As always, keeping it conscious with me today in our conversation from Tallahassee, Florida, where he oversees civil rights investigations for that state. My brother, my friend, singer-songwriter, and the encourager of your soul, Mr. Dante Bonner, is here with us today. Welcome to you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to all our listeners. We're going to take a wild ride today. This is going to be good, good, good. In hearing it, so I, I do recall watching that particular segment on the Oprah Winfrey Show in 1992. I was in high school, my senior year. This is bringing so many flashbacks. And as the show progresses, um, I know I have opportunities just to share, but this is just like a timeline from the time I was born up until now. And the conversation and that particular story that you just shared, I have so many memories personally of the same type of stories and reactions with teachers, with my family. So this is going to be a real critical conversation that we're going to have, and I'm looking forward to us uh, jumping into. Mm -hmm. Me too, me too. Now, 
before we go forward, I want to take us back because last week, and you and I texted about this briefly, but last week you made a comment on the show that kind of took me back. So I want to take our listeners back to that. Take a listen. I'll be honest. This word of the week uh, was very challenging for me, and I really didn't get this word until the ninth hour. I had an opportunity to kind of do some traveling with some friends and kind of get a little getaway. The ninth hour? I never heard of the ninth hour before. <laughs> I heard of the eleventh hour. <laughs> What's the ninth hour? <laughs> uh, it, it, it was late, but wasn't too late. All right, <laughs> well, that's a new one. Well, well Robert, actually... Technically, you can you can if you look back, Jesus was on the cross from the sixth to the ninth hour, so he could be talking about that very last hour. Well, there you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> like I said, it was late. So, brothers and sisters, you know, in all my reading of the Bible over the years, the ninth hour never really stuck with me. I hadn't really retained that reference. But after hearing Dante raise it and Brother Ferris Long, who was our special guest co-host last week, after he went back and explained it, I had to go back and look for myself. You know, I'm not one to just takes it. I got to go and see for myself. And so I did. And I spent a good part of last Sunday studying Matthew 27, 46, which reads, this is what it says, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloah, Eloah, Lama San Sabachani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me read that again. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloah, Eloah, Lama Sabachani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've read that, I can't even tell you, just like you, many, many times. And the ninth hour, this is what's so good about God's word, because there are so many layers. You can read the same sentence at 20 and read it again at 40, and this has totally fresh manna for you. And so I had never really... Retained that whole idea about the ninth hour. And the reason why it struck me when I went back and did my study and spent a lot of time reading about it and thinking about it and meditating on it, I knew about the believers gathering at Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. I knew that. I knew they were gathered there to pray twice a day, once at nine in the morning and once at 3 p.m., three in the afternoon. And so a few years ago, I started separating out that hour, three o'clock, as a quiet time. For me, And so every day at 2.45, my phone sends me alert, an alert, and I start bringing it down to a close, whatever I'm working on, so that I can spend from 3 to 4 in quiet meditation and prayer and just quiet time. And so I got that from the Word in Acts. You can read about that in Acts 2 through 5, how the believers would meet at Solomon's Colonnade. But because the ninth hour reference never really hit me, it wasn't until my study last week that I connected the fact that the ninth hour is 3 p.m. I know y'all know this. I'm late to this game. I did not know this. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. And that's the hour that Jesus sort of gave up his spirit on the cross. And once I connected that, I was like, wow, that was just like a divine breadcrumb that God gave me. And it all came from just Dante making that reference last week on the program. Now, I don't know if you were using it intentionally for its biblical and religious meaning, the phrase ninth hour. Ferris picked up on it immediately. I don't know what your intention was. Perhaps you want to say something about that. Well, no, I mean, it, I kind of referenced <laughs> it was like around 3 a.m., 
3 p.m. So well, like the night hour is like it was late, but it wasn't too late because we still had the show, you know, around nine, you know, nine thirty ten when we when we get on. So it was like the three o'clock time period. That was really more my my mental focus, and that's what came out like around the ninth hour. You know, right. <laughs> I'm glad that you got something out of that, you know, because that wasn't my intent. It was just more so of a just a statement, you know, of you know how I was able to kind of pull together kind of late, but you know it all worked out. It just shows that. The, the connection that we have, you know, with this show and just being able to grab those breadcrumbs, as you like to say, to help not only ourselves, but for our listeners as well. Yes, we talk a lot here about listening to your life and having an ear for the Holy Spirit. And when Ferris explained it, I thought you were just throwing ninth hour out, you know, and I was familiar with the 11th hour. And when Ferris explained it, I heard him. I heard him. I heard him later on in that show. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Later on in that show, you heard me misspeak, which turned out turned out to be a miss me misspeaking about Paul being a tax collector and a larger point that I was making. And Brother Ferris stepped up again and began to teach about Paul's life before his conversion on the road to Damascus. And I heard that too. So now I've been studying Paul, you know, and the point I'm trying to make here is that we have to listen. The clues are all around us about how to be led and where we're going in life. If you see the crumbs that God is putting in your path and listen to the people that are in your path, that's how God responds to us many times. That's how he leads and guides and teaches us. It's not necessarily from on high. We do get it. We do get spiritual downloads. Certainly, we've talked a lot about that here. It also comes from listening to the people in your path and hearing, having a listening ear. So I appreciate you for that. And I appreciate that right. fresh manner that came through you. And I'm grateful. So thank you. You know, the part that you were talking about as far as being the critical thought process. The indoctrination aspect, just to be very simple, is you've been taught something and that's that. No questioning about it and I can't be, my mind can't be changed. Whereas education-wise, where you are ignorant to something or not aware of something and then enlightenment or awareness comes to you and basically that causes you to go and search it out to see whether or not what was said was correct or incorrect for yourself. And in this particular situation, you were educated to find out that yes, what was said was, was correct and and could be applied even more so to give food for your own soul and your well-being as well. So that's whereas the indoctrination aspect would have just been like, I'm just missing what was said because I know what I know. And because my mama told me this or because such and such told me this or this because I found and not willing to think critically. Yes. And also what I learned last week is to receive correction. I mean, when Ferris corrected me, I received that and I told him that it's important to, and I can receive correction from people that I respect. It's more difficult for me to receive correction from people that I don't respect. My ego might've risen up mm -hmm. a little bit, but in that moment it didn't. And I received his correction. So we'll talk about more about that in days to come. This is a real special treat for me today. Also, I'm just almost giddy beside myself because today we have a special co-host with us who is a woman that I've known for a very long time, for 31 years, actually. Since 1986, we met and I'm going to take my time and have some fun with this introduction because it's just such a treat for me. And this doesn't happen every Saturday here. And we have shared. There's so much to say and so many memories of fun times and joyous occasions that we've spent together. Lots of love, some tears and some pain, too. And I remember back in 1996, I was hanging out with a guy named Anthony and Anthony said, well, do you want to come with me to this party tonight? And I was like, sure. And the party was at this woman's house. And so I went there with him and I met her and honest to God, <laughs> this is the truth. This is the truth, right? I have never seen Anthony again a day of my life. I never saw him again. I never saw that man 
again. I may have talked to him, but I don't recall ever seeing him again. When wow. I'm, I, it's true. When I met, when I met her, it's like we clicked. On the other hand, I saw her every single day for like probably five or six years. But during that summer of 1986, we had a lot of adventures. We clicked immediately. We were together every day. I'm going to tell one story out of hundreds that I could tell you today. <laughs> this will be one show where there's more left unsaid than there is said. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this one story. You know, we hung out at the nightclubs. I was 20 years old in 1986, and I was going to school in Baltimore at the University of Maryland. And I would come home during the weekends. And then during the summer, which is the time that I'm talking about now, you know, I was at home all the time. So we were together all the time. I worked at that time at Blue Cross and Blue Shield in the evening. My mother was the head of personnel. So she got us all summer jobs. You know, everybody in the family had a summer job because my mother was, you know, taking applications, as they say. So I worked from 4 to 10 paying medical claims. And literally, when I got off at 10 o'clock, if I went home, which probably many times I didn't, but if I went home, I would go home, change my clothes, and then I would pick up Judy, and then we would be hitting it to some watering hole, some nightclub, some spot, either in Washington or in Baltimore. I can't tell you how many nights we sat outside. <laughs> We sat outside of this place called, was it Hats? Hats or Jeff's place? One of these. Waiting for, uh, she'll remember this, Miss Pebbles. <laughs> this is one of the stories that will not be told today about Miss Pebbles. That's a whole other story. But she was a drag queen in Baltimore, infamous drag queen in Baltimore. And we would sit outside sort of waiting for her to do whatever she was going to do. So many stories. But this is the one that I really want to tell you. And Judy got us invited to, see if you remember this, Judy. She got us invited to a pool party. I did not know the people who lived there but she did and so we went to the pool party and it was the house of a woman named Myrtle I remember that her name was Myrtle and we went to our pool party had a good time I remember sitting at this table in the backyard where the pool was and there was this guy that was there I don't remember his name we were all drinking and having a good time and he clearly saw that we were best friends and I remember him saying to us the two of you all are going to get married see if you remember this Judy the two of you all are going to get married and I looked at him like what is he talking about and he said it's very clear to me that you all are best friends and you ought to marry your best friend and I thought that is really wild and what I most remember about that night is that I passed out I got so drunk that I passed out on the carpet inside the house in the living room I think I think it was the dining room I passed out on the carpet and I remember being somebody tapping me trying to wake me up in the wee hours of the morning I finally woke up the party was pretty much empty they were trying to get me off the floor to get me out of the house and they finally did and as we were leaving Judy who was wearing these very tall platform sandals Judy fell down the driveway. It was literally like a tumble down the driveway and scraped her knee. And only by the grace of God did I'm sure we got home that night, but we did. And I'm not happy to tell you that there were many, many, many nights where we just had a really, really good time. And thank God, you know, we got home. But here's the thing. Shortly after that, I don't remember how long after that it was. Maybe, I don't know how long it was. If that was, I don't know how long it was after, but I was working at the Urban League doing a radio show there. And I was the director of communications and the we had a new board member. And so to celebrate the arrival of this new board member onto the board of the Washington Urban League, she held an event at her house for all of us. And as I was driving to the event in the back of my mind, I was thinking I've been in this neighborhood before. I think I know I've been around here before. And then when I pulled up in front of that house, it was the same house that we had gone to that pool party before. And my heart started beating fast and I started sweating. I was like, oh my God, this is the same house. And I walked in and it was the same woman. The new board member was the woman whose house that I had gotten drunk at and 
passed out on her floor. And I was praying <laughs> that she would not remember. And if she did, please don't call me out. And so we met again. And she kind of, this could be in my mind, this part right here. I felt like she kind of gave me the side eye, but that could have been guilt. But she never said anything. And I remember siding up to her at the buffet that she had set up at her house. And we were talking and stuff and just, you know, sort of laughing and stuff. And I, in my mind, I could feel like she knows and she wants to let me know that she remembers. But she never said anything. And I remember thinking, wow, you just never know how these things are going to turn out. So the lady whose house that I passed out at at her pool party eventually ended up being pretty much my boss sometime later. And so a lot of things, that's just one of the adventures that I can tell you about our co-host today. We have spent many nights chasing Patty LaBelle's limo <laughs> across Washington, D.C. after going to see her at the Budweiser Superfest or Constitution Hall or wherever Patty was, that's where we were. I mean, we were Patty, Patty fans. And we spent many nights finding out where she was and trying to get to see her and all of that, even though I, I wasn't in touch with Judy at the time. But all of that came up in my mind, you know, years later, whenever I was working with Patti LaBelle and producing a special with her. And I never told her some of the specifics. I did tell her that I used to chase her limousine at RFK Stadium in Washington. I shared some of it with her, but because I was in a professional capacity and I was working with her, I didn't share with her how, just how much of a geeked out Patty fan I was back in the day. But Judy was there for all of those memories. So I'm going to let it go for there and just welcome on my friend from, oh, long, long, long time ago. And I'm so happy that you're here today, Ms. Judy Martin Coles. Welcome to you. Hello, Robert. How are you doing, <laughs> sir? Um, now, you know, I was getting a little antsy there when you were talking about sharing stories. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to share too many of those stories. Uh-uh, we don't. It's like in Vegas. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yes, Lord. But I do remember that party, Robert, and you never told me that you went back over to that house. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had some very, very interesting times. Yes. And more than one person told us that we should get married. I used to love going down to Ocean City yes. with your family. Yep. Because I was part of the family. Yes, for sure. They, everybody just had their arms wide open to me. Exactly. And it was so tremendous. We had, we had such a good time. Yes, we so did. It was so much fun. So yes. much fun. But the thing is, is that you have to grow up, okay? Yes. You have to grow up, So, and that's what we proceeded to do. I think, Robert, the most important thing that I want you to know is this. A long time ago, I spotted success within you. And I always told you, Robert, I want to work for you one day because you're going to be famous. And you have gone on to have an excellent career. I am so proud of you every time I see your name on a television show or something. I mean, you are, you're really a one cool dude. Thank you. And I never will forget all of the wonderful, wonderful times that we shared because it really added to my own growth. Mm -hmm. As you know, I went on to teach yes. after all those wild years, and I taught for 19 years. I taught English at Eastern. I taught at Hine. I taught at a charter school one year, and I ended my career out here in uh, PG County at Fairmont Heights High School. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you talk about indoctrination versus education stimulating mm -hmm. the mind, my goal for all of my students was for them to become creative 
and independent thinkers Mm -hmm. who could think critically and who could analyze information for themselves. I did not want children to parrot my ideas or my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to develop their own mind. What, What turns you on? What is right about this? What is wrong about this? Don't follow group think just because everybody said this is so. Don't make it your so. What is your legacy? What do you want to contribute to society? Robert, I just don't even know what to say, sir. Well, let me ask you this. Thank you, love. I appreciate you and I love you so much. When I remember when you were at Eastern and you would tell me how you would bring sometimes a tape recorder to class and you would teach through playing jazz music and things like that. What I would consider at that time to be innovative techniques. When you looked at some of the other teachers, your peers in the school and looked at some of their techniques, what did you see? Are people educating these young minds or are they indoctrinating just following the program that's set before them? you that 90% of the teachers felt like indoctrination was the way to go. I was always looked at as an oddball, and everybody wondered why the students loved coming to my class. Mm -hmm. Because not only did I teach through music, I taught through art, I taught through the computer, I taught through field trips. There are so many tools that a teacher can use to get their point across. But the most important thing is this. What exactly is your point? Mm-hmm. A lot of teachers can answer that question. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the point that you're making today? What is the takeaway that you want these children to have 10, 15, 20 years down the line? I think that when we analyze the education system, mm-hmm. we need to do a better job of preparing our instructors. I am saddened by what's going on at a lot of universities and colleges across the country. Mm -hmm. There only seems to be one voice that they want heard, and that is Republicans are bad, Democrats are good. Mm -hmm. Now, when you put a microphone in front of these young people's faces as they are rioting and protesting and burning things down to the ground, they do not have a clue as to why they're acting that way other than a college professor said it, it should be so. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have a situation where people are acting without thinking, mm-hmm. the groundswell for chaos. And this chaos will come back to bite America if we don't, you know, get on the right track. Mm-hmm. I also remember when you were at Eastern and you said to me one time that you were telling me about some of your students and you were telling me about one particular young lady. And I just remember you saying, Robert, this girl is like 16 or 17 and she has the body and the medical history of an 80 year old woman. And the point. okay, remember that. And the point you were making to me is that in the classroom, Mm. many times you are more than a teacher. You're a counselor. You're a mother. (laughs) You're a health provider. You're so many things in the classroom that go beyond the textbook. Can you speak to the reality of what it is to be in a classroom with some of those young minds, what they bring to the desk every day? Okay, well, I'm going to give you a a specific example. I had a student, I'm not going to tell her name. I had a student who lived in Potomac Garden, Mm -hmm. and this young lady would never bring her homework or outside projects or assignments to class. 
Now, in class, no problem. She had no problems producing in the class. But anything that I asked her to do outside of class never seemed to get done. And so I said to her one day, I said, you're going to look up one day, and I'm going to be knocking at your door because I need to try to figure out why you can't get your work done. Mm -hmm. She said, oh, Miss, this, I was Miss Martin then. She said, oh, Miss Martin, you're not coming to Potomac Gardens. That's the ghetto. That's the projects. I know you're not coming. One day... After I, it was after school one day, and it was, you know, Potomac Gardens was a short walk from Hine. It wasn't, it's like four or five blocks. Mm -hmm. So I got her address and knocked on her door. I was immediately taken aback by the odor. I could tell that she was embarrassed that I had come to her home. Mm. I didn't go in to the apartment, but from what I could see, from the hallway, there were mattresses all in the living room. She had like six or seven brothers and sisters. Mm. There were mattresses all in the living room, dirty and grimy, with not even sheet, no sheets, just the mattress. At that point in time, I had an epiphany. Mm -hmm. I said, Lord, never will I ever again stress homework assignments to children who are not doing them mm -hmm. because there has to be a reason why it's not getting done. Mm -hmm. mm. So, and, you know, I could tell you uh, I, how many times I bought uniforms, I bought tennis shoes, I was about treats to lunch. I mean, you know, like you said, it goes on. Teaching is a whole conglomeration thing. Mm -hmm. And if you're a good teacher, you know how to, first of all, relate to your students, not be on their level now. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about being their friends. I'm talking about being able to relate to them. Because what children want, they want direction, they want guidance, mm -hmm. and they want somebody to affirm that they are a positive living being. Mm -hmm. That's right. I had so many good good times teaching. Mm -hmm. I love teaching at Eastern and at Hine the best, but I truly, no, I should say, I love teaching at Hine the most because my principal was a man named Benny Adams, mm -hmm. and he was the best principal I ever had in my life. You know, and like they say, it starts at the head and goes down. And he was, I mean, he was so excited by what I was doing in the classroom that he gave me 20 computers to put in my class. Mm -hmm. He gave me equipment and tools that I could use. And yeah. I just love him to death. I still love him. Mm -hmm. I want to give a but, shout out um, to one of our regular listeners, Miss Kenya in Austin, Texas. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you always. Judy, I, I do want to ask you specifically about something that Jane Elliott said in one of the clips that I played. And she defined okay. education as she said to educate someone is to be in the act of leading them out of ignorance. How do you feel about that? I feel I feel great about that because you know that's why I tied into developing creative, independent, critical thinkers mm -hmm. who can look at situations. They can look at the newspaper and process it for themselves without being led by bias. Mm -hmm. They can speak on different topics and give their own opinion of something and not something that has been parroted to them, which they then regurgitate. That's not education. Mm -hmm. When I'm on Facebook, 
I have 5,000 followers on Facebook, Mm -hmm. and a lot of my followers are former students. Mm -hmm. So I'm always so glad when a former student reaches out to me and they tell me they're teaching third grade or they work for Metro or they work for anybody. They're just being productive citizens, Mm -hmm. and they have their own families. They're married with children. That really warms my heart because I know that in us, maybe an insignificant way, but in some type of way, I've made an effect on their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to Robert as to the importance of field trips. Mm-hmm. Now, I was the only teacher at both Eastern and at Hines mm-hmm. who regularly took the students out of the building, you know, to have a different experience. Mm-hmm. I've gone to New York City. We've gone to Baltimore. We have gone to Richmond, and then just all of the things that you can do within the city of D.C. And I had teachers tell me I wouldn't take them ignorant so-and-sos nowhere. Okay, well, see, if that's your attitude, you're already in the wrong profession. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Okay, you already need to get out, retire, okay, because all you're working for is a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings me right back to the ninth grade and Miss Brennan. God bless her soul. She was an older white woman uh-huh. who was my English teacher in the ninth grade. And Miss Brennan, when you walked okay. in her classroom, she would have the lesson for the day written in chalk now, old school, yes. chalk on the board. Yes. And you would just basically read okay. the lesson and do the book. And she would sit there and nap, literally nap oh, the whole time oh we were God. in there doing our lesson. No. I'm speaking to your point of teachers who don't even need to be in the profession anymore. And it was a joke. It was a joke. And you know, I'm an English boy. So I was looking forward to English. But her class, literally, you would just go in there, read the lesson, work it out through your book. And she was done. And it was sad. It was sad to see her just holding on for just a a retirement check, basically. Exactly. Uh And that kind of handicapping of students, that's criminal. It is. To me, that's a lawsuit. That's a lawsuit. Exactly. Okay. Because if a, if a doctor malpractice like that, he would get sued. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because I've been out of the system about five years. I, retired, I left in 2011. Mm-hmm. So I can't really tell you about the caliber of teachers who are entering the profession now, but it has been my experience during the time that I was teaching. So many of the teachers were in their 60s, totally out of touch, totally burnt out. Like you said, they're just putting stuff on the board, sitting at the desk napping. But what are we going to do about it? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Judy, to speak to that, one of the things I was going to ask was the fact that you're talking about the critical thinking. When you have federal and state guidelines making mandates on that a certain percentage of students must pass for to receive funding or to receive pay raises. And so to make sure that you're, you're teaching the students how to pass a test as opposed to teaching critical thinking skills. So the indoctrination comes into play possibly because you need to know the stuff to pass a particular test so that way you can receive a particular grade because schools and teachers were, whether or not they were a good school or a bad school, were based upon whether or not they passed these standardized tests that are already kind of implicitly biased anyway. So right. do you think that also played a factor into why the indoctrination took place. Well, we call that teaching to the test, Dante. Mm-hmm. And in many schools, principals encourage teachers to teach 
to the test. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in teaching these children how to write, how to think, how to do anything else but circle A, B, C, or D. Mm -hmm. They teach test-taking strategies. A main part of your curriculum is teaching to the test, then your test results are skewered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're not actually getting an accurate portrait of this child. You're getting what they've been indoctrinated to regurgitate. What I found is when they came out with no child left behind, right. a lot of children started getting left behind. Mm -hmm. That was where... You know, the emphasis came on teaching to the test. That's where that emphasis came from. Mm -hmm. Now, Robert and I both graduated from the same high school. We graduated from Central High School. Mm -hmm. And shout out Central. Mm -hmm. and, um, Falcons. <laughs> during the time that we were at Central, mm -hmm. there were so many good teachers. Mm -hmm. When I reached college, college was actually easy for me. I couldn't believe it was that easy. Because I was used to having two or three hours of homework every night. I, you had to write so many essays, so many research papers. If you were on that advanced track, which both uh, Robert and I were on, yes. you took all the upper-level classes. Right. Um, AP. So, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to, to college, oh, it was a breeze. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just to give you an example, I graduated from college in five years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, normally you graduate in four years. Okay. But I graduated in five years and I went to three different schools. I started out at Towson State University. Then I went to Howard University. And finally, I graduated from Morgan State University. Okay. I attribute a lot of my skills and again, you know, my ability to think independently and creatively and critically to a lot of those teachers that I had, that I had at Central. I, was Mr. Brinkley still there when you came to Robert? Yeah, Mr. Brinkley was still there. And I do want to speak on what you just said, oh, though. Because, yeah, I want to speak on what okay. you just said, because in all of the teachers that I had matriculating up through... Uh, elementary school, junior high, and high school. There are really only two that stand out to me. And one, Miss Miss, okay. Miss Felder, who was my fifth grade teacher, and Mr. Morgan, who was okay. at Central, was my AP English teacher. And these are people, there are teachers who, when you first walk into their class, from jump on day one, they set a standard. Period. Mr. Morgan called you Mr. Branch. He did not use your first name. He used your last name. And that automatically, A, made you know that he respects you, and B, it made you respect yourself more and how you deported yourself in his classroom. Mr. Morgan was no joke. All right. And Miss Felder, my fifth grade teacher, she had us. This is no joke. My mom will back this up. Miss Felder had us at, at in fifth grade reading doing college level English work in fifth grade. Yes, it was difficult, but she pushed you. She pushed you. She demanded the best of you. And it automatically made you respect her and respect that you were getting some stuff that people in Mr. Adler's class weren't getting. You felt good about that. So those are two right. teachers that really stood out. It reminds me of how Debbie Allen did in fame. 
Remember how Debbie Allen used to push those kids in those dance classes and make them? That's how those teachers were. They were in it for something more than just teaching to a test or indoctrinating students and moving them through the process. They were in it to mold minds. And when I got to college, there was a woman named Dr. Chezia Thompson who also taught English there. And she was another one. She made you, you couldn't just take a test. I remember one test we took in college, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You couldn't write the test. She wanted you to get up in front of the class and sing the test. You had to sing your answers to the test. And I said, this bitch is out of her mind. But I got what she was trying to do. That life is not just about words. It's how you express yourself. Stand up here and express that answer. Teachers have a calling. Teaching, I mean, they have a voice to be able to be able to go beyond the indoctrination and to really get through this to think critically, to be able to do those particular type of things. And that it's a gift, you know, that that all teachers just don't have. And you need to understand whether or not is this your calling to do because you're going to do those things that Judy has talked about. You may go to the house as far as inquiring why you see something, something with students, and you're trying to cultivate, and you may have to do a little extra as opposed to I'm not doing any more, any less. They haven't given me this, so I'm not trying to do this because I'm trying to complete a check. Mm-hmm. But then there needs to be a, re- a reevaluation as why are you in this field in the first place? Because you're holding the future in your hands, and you're being exactly. a detriment to that. And that is, and that's a very good point you just made, Judy, about that is malpractice. Mm-hmm. Because we, we can sue for malpractice and, and lawyers and doctors and going all these type of facilities, but in education, which is the greatest area that every person in this country is affected by. You are affected by school. You have to go and if you're not given the critical tools to be a functioning member of society, that is malpractice. I wanna mention one more thing that's critical or is key to being a a very good teacher. And that is making sure that you alter your lesson plans and your ideas around all of the intelligences because every child comes to you with a special talent. Mm -hmm. And you have to find out what this child's talent is and how can you hone it so that his star or her star can shine brighter. If you're a teacher who you have one lesson plan, like Robert said, the lady wrote it on the board. Okay, she's not, well, she's not teaching that anybody's intelligent. You have to vary what you do because this may reach this student. That may reach that student. It can't be all reading and writing. You have to throw in your creative tools. And let me say this. Part of my teaching ability comes from God. And it's passed down through generations in my family. Mm -hmm. I had a great grandmother that was a teacher. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was a teacher. My mother and my aunts were teachers. Well, I'm the end of the line. Nobody's coming after me. (laughs) But when you have that instilled in your familial spirit, then that, Mm -hmm. of course, adds to it, too. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you one more question before we lose our our time with you today, which is precious to me. And I appreciate every minute that you're here. And and I want to share one more. I want to share one more story. Okay. You are welcome. You are welcome. Over your 19 years in the classroom, you mentioned Eastern and Hines and the charter school in Fairmont Heights. I'm not sure of the racial makeup of those schools, but my question is, what was the racial consciousness of your students? When you think about Black Lives Matter today and the activism that you're seeing today, yes, it was another time in which you were teaching not so long ago, five years you got out of the classroom, but what was the racial racial consciousness of your students and how did you teach to that? Okay. 
okay, well, I never experienced it. There was no racial consciousness. I guess because I was in predominantly 99.9% black environment. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, a student would say, oh, this teacher is racist, she racist, or this person. And then my first question would be, well, what makes her racist? Mm-hmm. Why is she racist? Is she racist because you failed a test? Or is she racist because she treats you differently? But see, the thing is, it's like I said, you know, 99.9% of my students were black. Mm-hmm. So, and these days now, when I was at the height of my career, which I consider was the height of my career, when I was at Hines, mm-hmm. a lot of those students went on to HCBUs, where, of course, they thrived. A lot of black students in these days and times are going to majority white universities. Mm-hmm. I don't know why or, you know, what happened, but somehow they seem to be, Robert, you already mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. How we used to run all over the city mm-hmm. looking for Patty Lavelle. Mm-hmm. We would go from one hotel to the other. <laughs> we would, you know, follow her memo. I mean, we did everything we could. So finally, one day, <laughs> we both went to see Patty Lavelle at Constitution Hall. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching at Eastern at the time. And I was thinking, I was like, now, I wonder if they'll let me go backstage if I tell them I'm a teacher and I want to ask Patty to come talk to the students. Mm -hmm. I really did not think it would work. However, it worked. And they took me backstage and I was sitting in the waiting lounge. Mm -hmm. And two different people, this is when she had switched management. She uh, she had white people managing her at this time. Mm -hmm. So two different people came and said, uh, Miss Martin, Miss LaBelle will be with you shortly. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't, I wasn't back there any longer than 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so finally Patty came out. I thought I would melt Robert, <laughs> but my legs, you know, my legs were steady under me. Uh-huh. So it was raining outside, not rain, torrential rain, Mm -hmm. but more like a drizzle. And so I asked her, I said, may I walk you to your limo? So her manager gave me the umbrella Mm -hmm. to hold over her head while I walked her to the limo. Mm -hmm. When When I came out. And I was walking her to the limo. I heard somebody scream, and I said, there's Robert. (laughs) 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 When I I got her to the limo, I opened up the the door for her, and I said, may I kiss you on the cheek? And she said, yes. And I gave her a big kiss on the cheek, and that is my Tyler Bell story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love you, Robert. I love you, too, and I thank you for being (laughs) here today. Yes, Dante, it has been my pleasure. Yes. My pleasure as well. Come back and visit us again. Oh, definitely. Thank you, Judy. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, I can tell you that. What do I want to say? I want to tell you that the look on my mother. A lot of love. A lot of love <laughs> and the look on my mother's face when I would come home with Judy to change clothes, to go chase Patty somewhere over the, over town. She would just look at us like these kids. <laughs> again, we were only 20. I'm 50 now. This was a long time ago. This was 30 years ago. But the look on her face, standing there looking at us, and we would be so excited. And my mother would just look at us like, wow those kids and we definitely had some adventures together so i appreciate the time we were able to spend here together this morning let us please (laughs) 
Let us please take a break. This is going to be a short break, and then we'll come back and continue our conversation on education or indoctrination. And when we come right back, Dante will give us his word of the day. We'll be right back. That's right, you're listening to the Robert Wesley Brand Show. Come get it, come get it, come get it. Come get it, come get it, come get it. Come get your inspiration. Come get your inspiration. Inspiration. I'm your RAV4 genie. Got any wishes? I wish my son was safer. Well, this RAV4 has a blind spot monitor and eight airbags. How about when he's not in the car? Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Use your knees. The all-new RAV4. Toyota. Let's go places. Whole Foods Market's favorite dishes start with locally grown organic produce. Use custom cut meats and leave out any artificial ingredients. Whole Foods Market features natural and organic products like endangered species chocolate. Savor chocolate, save our planet. Wisconsin cheese made with pride, our secret ingredient. Look for the Wisconsin cheese logo. And organic throat coat and smooth move, herbal teas for reliable self-care. Whole Foods Market. Feel good about where you shop. I'm one of six children that my mother raised by herself. And so college was a dream when I was a kid. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I was going to get that opportunity one day. And that's what happened with the University of Phoenix. Nothing can stop me now. I feel like the sky's the limit with what I can do and what I can accomplish. My name is Naftali Bryant, and I am a Phoenix. Be a part of the conversation. We welcome your views. The Robert Wesley Brandt Show, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, only on blogtalkradio.com. Dante just wrote me a note to let me know I better watch my mouth, which I'm going to do here today because it's all love. I do want to get caught up with some comments in the chat room. Before I do that, I want to let you know that I'm Robert Wesley Branch. I'm coming to you from Ocean City, Maryland this morning. Brother Dante is in Tallahassee. And our guest who was with us earlier, Miss Judy, she is coming to you from Washington, D.C., Maryland area. So I do want to get, oh, I want to give a shout out to my brother, Kyle Coles, who's listening. Thank you, Brother Coles. Brother Kyle, I appreciate you very much. Let's see what they're saying in the chat room here. Miss Jacqueline says, yes, every day, me too. I think you're referring to me talking about, she says, I've done this for 30 years. I think she's talking about the three o'clock quiet time. I think that's what that is. And she says, it's a popular Southern saying, you waited until the ninth hour. See, technically I'm from the South. I'm from Maryland, which is below the Mason-Dixon line, (laughs) which is technically below the Mason-Dixon line. But I know y'all are talking about deep South, like Florida and Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. So we didn't have that saying here about the ninth hour. What did you say here? You waited until the ninth hour. See, we have the 11th hour here. You know, I'm in Washington, D.C., city of politics. So we didn't get that ninth hour reference, but I'm sure glad I have it now. I'm sure glad I have it now, Miss Jacqueline. 
So I appreciate that. Oh, no, Jacqueline didn't say that. Uh, Stay Intuitive Love Readings said that. So I appreciate you for that. Oh, Jacqueline did say it's a popular Southern saying. You waited until the ninth hour. So what else we got here? Someone asked about teaching to the test. I think we, we did talk about that. I think Judy answered that. And the question was, is teaching mm-hmm. to the test a cop-out? You know, and I think she pretty much explained that here. Miss Jacqueline does say, I have eight children in pre-K through 12. Eight children? Are they your own uh, children? Yes, they are hers. Lord have mercy. Let's just do a moment of tribute and mother love <laughs> to Miss Jacqueline for having eight children. Wow. God bless you. From 17 to 1. God bless you, Ms. Jacqueline. She says, I have eight children in pre-K through 12. I feel like I just want to send a fruit basket to wherever Ms. Jacqueline is, because that's a lot. That's a lot. Okay. Performance measures are important, she writes. I have never seen anything that teaches to the test. So I know a lot of parents who are sort of up in arms about this whole idea of teaching to a test because they feel mm-hmm. like that's robbing their children of some of a 360 for lack of a better phrase view and experience of education. So we'll, we'll have to dig into that in days ahead. I wish I had looked at these comments when Judy was here. I did not. And I apologize. There's a lot going on here. And so I missed that. So Dante, I'm going to swing it over to you now for your word of the week. Well, our word of the week today is kind of piggybacks off of our conversation concerning education. The word is enlightenment or enlightened. Mm. And the Merriam-Webster's definition is to furnish knowledge to or give spiritual insight. But I want to focus on this aspect, to give greater knowledge and understanding about a subject or situation. So today we've been discussing education and a little side product as far as giving definitions to how schools, and I would like to even bring up the fact of uh, historically black colleges and universities or HBCU schools, Mm-hmm. in the lives of African-American community. These schools of learning feed the minds of students to bring enlightenment, not only from within the selected course of study, but to the personal enrichment to the mind, body, and spirit. Now, these schools are filled with people from all walks of life, all parts of the world, and different social and societal beliefs. And they seek to bring knowledge, but yet challenge the mindset and behavior of students to bring them to awareness as to who they are and what they can become. Now, in August of 1993, a young skinny kid weighing less than 120 pounds was dropped off at Florida A&M University, Mm. filled with excitement and trepidation, not knowing the enlightenment that was to be instilled, imparted, and impacted in his life. That skinny kid was me. I was raised as a military child growing up around the world, surrounded by different cultures, societies, and economic groups, And I was one of the one or two black people in the classroom for most of my formal education. Mm -hmm. As I got older, there were more people of color around me, but I was still in the minority. I was one of two blacks in the top 25 of my graduating class. So when I graduated high school, I wanted to go to a school, to a place where I was in the majority. I wanted to be in a place where my intellect was looked upon as the norm Mm -hmm. and not an exception or something strange. I chose to attend Florida A&M because I thought it would provide me a safe place to learn and grow. And it provided that and then some. Florida A&M, or commonly known as FAMU, was a pool of enlightenment for me. It challenged me to think outside the box and not just accept the status quo. It taught me to begin my own spiritual journey and not just rely on my mom and pop's prayers alone. 
It also challenged me to seek and understand the world differently than my previously thought process about life. Now, I have to admit, I did have a sense of arrogance coming on campus, having lived overseas and traveled across the country. I met and encountered people that had even left the state of Florida, and they were raised 30 minutes from the Georgia state line. And I also met people from the different cities and states where I had lived or had visited. However, when I encountered faculty and students from Latin America and Africa, and they challenged my American mindset, it brought me to a different area of enlightenment that I wasn't expecting, but I found a new appreciation for things that I was ignorant to. Sam, you expanded my sense of black pride and cultural awareness as well. But it also gave me a safe space for self-discovery, trying to understand myself as a young black man or how I fit in in life, my likes and dislikes, and help forge my path to begin this journey called life. Sam, you gave me the freedom and liberty to gain and receive as much knowledge and enlightenment that I was willing to take. So when I hear the question about HBCU relevance, those comments are taken personal, because I know the experiences and the richness that HBCU schools provide, that it's not written in a brochure or can be calculated in quantifiable metrics. The seeds of enlightenment that are planted by FAMU and other HBCU schools bring a harvest years later when young men and women find their place and their voice in life and begin to walk their journey with their tools in hand that they receive from these schools. Our lives and successes validate their existence and encourages others to come where they are to live their lives and receive the same enlightenment that was shared with us. Mm-hmm. We are the receipt leading us to fulfill Martin Luther King's statement paid in full. Mm-hmm. And that is my word of the week. Excellent word of the week. Enlighten or enlightenment. Now you have both experiences having come through the majority of your elementary, junior high and high school years in a predominantly white institution or institutions. And then you have mm-hmm. the historically black college and university, higher level education, higher learning experience. Correct. So and, when and, we t- so I spent a year at a uh, predominantly white school before I came to FAMU. Understood. When you at a college. Understood. When you think about the question of education or indoctrination, when you got to FAMU, did you in any way begin to see how your previous educational experience had been somewhat indoctrinated? Did FAMU free you of some consciousness and perspective that you may not have had before? Brought awareness of stuff. It told me the stuff I knew and the stuff I didn't know, and it also told me how, the stuff that I didn't know how much I didn't know. Being like I said, being raised in the military gave me a different perspective, a lot of different things because I was constantly challenged on the things that I was brought and taught. As far as, for example, I'll just give you the example. As far as I lived in certain states where. Blacks are not thought of to be critically thinking as far as being involved in winter sports and things of that particular sort. Like blacks don't do that, and blacks don't swim, blacks don't play golf. You mm-hmm. know, this is put by before Tiger Woods. So you hearing that, even though you know that that's the case, but because you didn't see it in the media or hear a lot about it, it, it just wasn't. It was just hard to kind of just fathom it. But going to FAMU, seeing golfers, seeing swimmers, seeing philosophers, seeing persons speaking multiple languages, seeing the fact of how indoctrinated in the sciences and technology. So what it gave me was a sense of it was no longer abstract. It gave me like 
see, yes, I, I knew it was there. This is something I, I was taught from my parents and from my oldest family members, but it, it, it gave me the sense of validation as far as it was more than beyond what was taught to me. And then also my story coming to school, I was in a school system where it was where you can go to the junior college, where you can go to the lesser college, if you will. And I was not told information about getting the type of scholarships necessary to go forward. And then so I had to search it out on my own and then go into saying, you offering this is what's offered. This can be offered to you this week. So it gave me a sense of I was robbed. Mm -hmm. Let me share some feedback from Brother Kyle. In the chat room, he says, my first time listening to the Robert Wesley Branch show, excellent topic and vibrant discussions. Judy and I connected while she finished her studies at Morgan State University, another HBCU. And Brother Kyle writes, our stories intertwined for many years to this date. Her work as an educator and living legacy of educators influenced my work as an artist, activist, and community stakeholder wherever I planted my flag. So refreshing to hear her live and to sit and listen a bit to the two of you piece your stories together, the ones you shared. I remember her sharing with me a bit of your shared journey. See, Kyle knew Judy, but I didn't know Kyle. Kyle and Judy seemed to me to be the way that Judy and I were when they were in college together. That's the impression that I always okay. got because she always talked about Kyle, Kyle, this, Kyle, that, Kyle, this, Kyle, that. And I had never met him. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, who is the brother? And every time this used to piss me off too, Judy, because she's still listening. Every time I would make something for her to eat when she would come to my house, she would always compare what I made with what Kyle would make. Okay. And I was like, listen, <laughs> you bought the end of friendship real quick here. Exactly. <laughs> Enough with the Kyle. She would always say, Kyle would cook for me and he would bring out perfect plate after perfect plate after perfect plate. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm, yeah, whatever, Judy. But anyway, brother Kyle says, uh, <laughs> he says, I remember her sharing with me a bit of your shared journeys. Our work is really as educators and people in action is never done. May we all have the strength to carry on and empower others to be a difference in the ever changing world today. That is true. That is true. And I really want to drill down on this point of education versus indoctrination. And I think what I want to do, this is not too long, but just indulge me with this. I just want to, we opened our show today with this experiment that Jane Elliott did and has done many times, this exercise in discrimination based upon eye color. She's done this many times, but I'm going to take you to a clip of her conducting this experiment. We opened the show with her telling the students in the brown eyed group, to treat these blue-eyed people in a specific way, to treat them like they're less than, that they can't learn, they're not going to learn. That's their job in the brown-eyed group. In the clip that I'm about to play, the blue-eyed group is entering the room for the first time. So I want to play this clip, and then I want to dialogue about it on the other end. So take a listen. Hello, people. Let's Now look at this, watch him. Look at him. Should we just sit anywhere? Should we just sit anywhere? If you came into a room in which the chairs were arranged in this way, and the brown-eyed people were sitting in the, these chairs in this way, and nobody was sitting in the chairs in the middle, where would you sit? In the middle. That would make sense to me. Would it make sense to you? Where are you going? Get in the blue-eyed section. The blue-eyed section is in the middle of the room. Get there. 
You're a non-brown? As far as I'm concerned, you're a bully. Now, is this one giggling? What do you know about him? It's because he's ignorant. What else do you know about him? He's in his little kid child's ego state, isn't he? Get up here and sit down on the floor. You too. Get up here and sit down on the floor. <laughs> I was really tired when I entered the room, but I didn't have any expectations. I was just sitting there and wondering how it could be an emotional experience. On the day these kids, these white kids are in this exercise, they see themselves as other people see them for the first time in their lives. What are you going to do? Sit here until you tell me to do something. <laughs> see what he's doing? I'm a girl. See what she's doing? It didn't take very long before intimidation set in and uh, before my, my buttons were pushed. Now, while I've been talking, some of you have been sitting there reading the signs. I'm not going to put up with that any longer. So you in the back row, stand up and read the first sign on that wall back there. Only brown eyes need apply. Read it so we can hear you. Only brown eyes need apply. Next. Why can't... A blue eye be more like a brown. Read it again. Get it right this time. Why can't a blue eye be more like a brown? Read it again. Get it right this time. Pronounce each one of those words correctly as they're written. Why can't a blue eye be more like a brown? Next. I'm not prejudiced. Some of my best friends are blue-eyed. How many of you have ever heard that one before in another form? Oh, yes. Favorite claim of liberals, right? I'm not prejudiced, and my best friends are black. Has any person ever said to you, any good liberal person ever said to you, when I see you, I don't see you black? Every day! <laughs> Every damn day! How many of you have had that experience? When I see you, I don't see you black. And what do you say to them when they say that? But I am. But I am. And then what do they say? They say, but I don't see color. I don't see color. <laughs> How many of you think they do see color? Well, people, if they didn't see color, they wouldn't say, when I see you, I don't see you black, because they wouldn't see black, would they? You can't say, I don't see color, because then you'd be seeing them black and white. And that would be a really weird world to see. If everything was black and white, we would be some really messed up people. It happens to me on a daily basis in the institution I'm at, and there's really no way around it, because whether people do it intentionally or not... Jane Elliott conducting her Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes experiment. That particular clip is from 2000. She's done this many, many, many times. What do you think when you hear what those students are experiencing during that experiment, Dante? Revelation. One of the things that I love about this experiment is it puts people in positions that they are unfamiliar with. And a lot of times there's all the same as far as, you know, you don't know how far a man is walking until you walk in his shoes. And this gives a very literal presentation on the reverse on how people feel when they're being discriminated against. I work in a field where there are constant complaints of discrimination as far as because of the way they look, because of the way of their disability or some type of God-given presentation that cannot be changed at the drop of a hat, you know, like putting on certain clothes, but yet they're being treated differently. But when you have this situation where you have particularly white persons who are particularly always in a position of white privilege or white authority, that being taken from them because 
typically speaking, they've always been in that position. It reveals to them, first of all, that it's there and what it feels like to no longer have that position of feeling awkwardness, helplessness, and anger because they're no longer in control. And it, it's a realization that a lot of things that are said are done from the position of authority and control. This is an experiment that Jane Elliott has been conducting for many, many, many years. It's an exercise in discrimination based upon eye color. So in this group, there are brown-eyed people, non-brown-eyed people, and blue-eyed people. And all of the blue-eyed people are sitting in the middle of the room. And all of the brown-eyed people are sitting around them in a ring around the blue-eyed people. And the brown-eyed people have been told to make it hard for the blue-eyed people to treat them as less than. And what I'm about to play for you may be difficult for some of our listeners to hear. This is an experiment, and it gets pretty deep. Take a listen. Do you know the physical aspects of the listening skills? You're afraid not? What about you? Definitely not. Definitely not. What about you? A bit. A bit? Yes. A bit? Yes. Well, tell me what the bit is that you know. Uh, the bit that I know is that you stand up straight, you look at the person who's speaking, and you pay attention to what they're saying. What if you're sitting down? I, I am sitting down. Then you can't listen, right? by sitting down. Oh, you just said you stand up straight? I said you sit up straight. You Did she say you sit up straight or did she say you stand up straight? <laughs> Is this a universal problem with blue-eyed people? You have a paper and pencil with you? No. Do you? Over in my bag. Maybe. Over in your bag? Yes. Why is it in your bag? Because that's where I keep it. That's where you keep it? When Why I'm did you put your paper and pencil over there? Because I was not, I did not know when I was going to be needing it. You came to a learning experience, right? Yes. Did you ever go to a learning experience before? Yes. Did you ever take notes? Yes. What did you use? I used a paper and pencil. Paper and pencil. And did you keep it with you so that you could take notes? Yes. Yes. Why didn't you do that this time? Because I was not planning on taking notes. You weren't planning on taking notes? You no. think you can remember everything that's going to be done in here and said in here? Not word for word. Not word for word? So what should you have done? I... Probably, she's going to say, I probably should have done it right. What should you have done? I should have brought my paper and pencil over here and kept it with me That's the right. entire time. That's right. You're acting angry. I am angry. What are you angry about? I'm angry that you're yelling at me. Do you hear me yelling? This is yelling! Have I done that yet? Okay, you're using a stern voice. And are you, angry. are you defining me? No, I am not defining you. Is she you. defining me? Does she say I'm yelling when I'm not? Perception is everything. Do you feel like I'm yelling at you? Yes. Yes, why? Because you're using a stern voice. A stern... Honey, <coughs> it isn't my fault you're stupid. Would you like me now, to go get my paper and pencil? I wouldn't like you in any way, shape, or form. Okay, then that's fine. Let's, let's get that understood here. Okay. This isn't a matter of whether I like you or not. Repeat after me. One hand. One hand. One hand, two... Not hand. Hen. 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 Lay eight eggs. One hen. One hen. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four hemorrhic oysters. Hemorrhic oysters? I'm sorry. Limerick oysters. Limerick oysters. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters, five corpulent porpoises. You can remember everything, honey. No, this I isn't hard for you. Go for it. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters, five 
I forget the other one. Do you wish you had a paper and pencil? No. Do you think you're going to need one if I keep testing you on that? Yes. Then are you going to wish you had a paper and pencil? Yes. Yes. So in the future, what are you going to do when you go to a learning situation? Bring a paper and pencil. And keep it with? Me. You. Did you learn anything? Yes. Do you appreciate what you just learned? Yes. Did you like the way it was taught? No. No. Any of the rest of you ever taught in that fashion? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And did you have to express appreciation for it? Yeah. yeah. Could you learn something from her example? What are you crying about? Sorry. What are you crying about? My feelings hurt. How were your feelings hurt? Just hurt. Should I feel sorry for her? I don't expect you to. Should I feel sorry for her? Some of you are thinking, oh, this is too harsh for this young woman. James Bird, black man in Texas, dragged to death behind a pickup truck by three white males. Matthew Shepard, Matthew Shepard, young man about your little, your little younger than you are, had the misfortune to be born gay, beaten, beaten with a pistol about the head until they cracked his skull. And then they hung him on a deer fence and left him there overnight. And somebody coming along on a bicycle the next day saw a bunch of clothing hanging on this deer fence. And they went over and started to take the clothing off the deer fence and found a body in the clothing. I'm sorry. But those things happen because we live in a society in which people are allowed to treat those who are different in an ugly way because of their differentness. I cannot shed tears for a young white female in this exercise who knows that this is an exercise, who knows that it's temporary, who knows that she's getting a college credit, one hour of credit for being here. I'm sorry. I have to save my sympathy and my empathy for those who go through something much worse than this every day of their lives. Tears were coming in my eyes and when I saw these people crying I'm like but it wasn't for them it was for the fact that I know people who are going through that right now while we were sitting in that classroom and had the privilege and the time and the opportunity to be going through an experiment that there were people outside who go through that ten times worse than any student of color in that room. So within a few minutes of that back and forth with Jane Elliott and that white female student, she had her feelings hurt. And I completely respect and understand that, at which point, as you heard, Jane Elliott brings up James Byrd, who was dragged from a truck in Texas, and Matthew Shepard, who was viciously beaten and left to hang on a deer fence, dead, because he was gay. And so her point being, as you heard, think about the trauma that black folks live with not only from ancestral memory of slavery and all of the horrific things that happened then, but with the treatment that we receive every single day, subtle and overt racist treatment. Dante, your thoughts on what you just heard. A huge part of me is like, I wish that this was a part of every school mm -hmm. across the country because I agree that racism is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior because I can look on the playground and I can see black and white kids, I can see Asian and white kids playing together and laughing. But until the adults step in and say, no, don't play with him, 
don't go over there until that is put in them. They don't know any different. And so it is a learned behavior. So how do you unlearn something? You have to be taught. So the only way you can talk is you be in an experience where you can see that because we can say this all day. Mm -hmm. And we heard those catchphrases. Oh, my best friends are this color. But until you actually experience that, that's when the epiphany happens. And will it change everybody? No. Nothing is absolute. I am so convinced that it will open the mind of so many other people that it would raise the consciousness level on how people are treated to begin to give more value to what's being given right now. That's, that's what's on my mind. Like, I am so wishing this is a, a mandatory, like you have no choice to participate in that kind of exercise. Well, here's what Sister Jacqueline says in the, in the chat room. Now, we could do a whole show on what she's saying right here. This is what she says. It is really funny how a stern voice is considered yelling. I've experienced that firsthand. Yes. Now, that's the truth right there. And I don't know if Sister Jacqueline is a person of color or not. In the black community, you know, if people watched us, if you just listen to me on this show every week, like I'm talking now and I get passionate and I get heated, you would think I'm angry. I'm not angry at all. It's just the way we communicate. If you look, sit around a table and watch some black folks play spades, you would think they hate each other. And that's all love yes. right there. That's all love. But you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that listening. So I hear you about the stern voice. There are many people that mischaracterize what they're hearing when they see people of color, particularly black folks, talk to one another. That's not yelling. I'm not yelling right now. It may seem like it, but I'm not yelling. But if you don't know, I'm passionate Mm -hmm. about what I'm saying. So Mm -hmm. my tone is in a different is in a different on a different frequency. But that's very, very important. I'm going to play this last clip. And this is the most dramatic clip from this experience. This is the most dramatic clip. And then we're going to wrap up our final thoughts about this whole question of education and indoctrination. This is an old film. It's been out there about 17 years. So I know it's not the easiest thing to hear, but do your best to listen to this last clip. This is how the experiment comes to an end. Take a listen. should look at the person who's talking and sit up straight or have open body posture. Open body posture is crossed legs? No. No, no. Aren't you going to be a good listener then? There, now, this is open body posture. Shouldn't your legs be apart if they're open? (laughs) Not necessarily. Hey, I'm here. Not necessarily. Now, does that make sense, what you just said? A cross-body position gives the effect that you are not open to what someone is saying. But when people's body positions... Wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. I'm going to make a sign and hold it up in front of you that says, Stop when you get too wordy, and you just did. Do you know the physical aspects of listening skills? Apparently not. Apparently not. Oh, I don't think you do. You certainly don't have an open body posture. Do you know the physical aspects of the listening skills? No. No. Do you? No, Miss Ellie. But you got a real open body posture, don't you, darling? I guess so. So you can learn, can't you? Now, getting right along. Your hand is still up. You still didn't learn anything, did you? Didn't I just say when your hand is up, you are thinking of what you're going to say instead of what's being said? Didn't I just say that? Yes, you did. And did you hear that? Yes, I did. And did you decide that you were just going to do it your way? I was Wait a minute, you were on a roll yes, there. Yes, I did. Yeah, thank you very yes, much. Yes, I did. Now, since you choose to not listen, 
to others, what do you suppose we're going to do where you're concerned? Now, listen to me. Thank you very much. Now, now saying, no, please? because you're still thinking what you're going to say instead of what I'm saying. Now, getting right along. I heard what you Wherever, were saying. You're doing I it again. What you were you're saying. doing it again. I don't care. You're doing it again. It's wrong. You're you doing it again. Persecuted her for standing you're out. You're doing it again. Persecuted him for standing out. The only change that ever happens is when people stand out, and I have sat back down. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Are you in any physical danger here? Are you in any physical danger here? Is that girl in any physical danger here? Emmett Till was hanged by his neck after he was beaten almost to death simply because he said, made a statement to a white woman. Does he have a reason to be angry? Every time I do the exercise, there is a point at, at which I know I have made the point. And we could stop there, but you have to nail it down. And so it goes on longer than some people think it should, but you have to nail it down. People at this institution... You've made your point, you're right. Yeah, thank you very much. What is my point that I've made? That I, you can't make generalizations about any place because there's racism everywhere. That's right. And while it may be... Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No. 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 You don't come back in here until you've apologized to every person in this room because you just exercised a freedom that none of these people of color have. When these people of color get tired of, ra of racism, they can't just walk out because there's no place in this country where they aren't going to be exposed to racism. They can't even stay in their own homes and not be exposed to racism if they turn on the television. But you, as a white female, when you get tired of being judged and treated unfairly, on the basis of your eye color, you can walk out that door. And you know it won't happen out there. You exercise the freedom they don't have. If you're going to be in here, you're going to apologize to every black person in this room. And do it now. And the Latinos. Every person of color. Bullshit. No, you're not going to say, I'm sorry, there's racism. You're going to apologize for what you just did. I will not apologize because... It's Out. not a matter of race, Out. always. Out. Out. Now, is she choosing to leave? Yes. yes. She could apologize and stay. I won't play oh. the wrong game anymore. It's not going to hurt her to apologize. Yeah, let's talk about that. What's going on in this room alone? Once she leaves it, that's it. It's over with. Okay. They ain't gonna hurt her. Is it gonna hurt her? She, according to action, it is killing. It's killing her. Yeah, it's killing her. But these people, they felt like it was somewhat traumatic. And I'm thinking, how is this so traumatic when they weren't cursed? Nobody was throwing anything at them. They weren't hit. It, they were just getting upset over minor stuff that happens to us. On, that happens to us every day, but they don't realize it. One of our students left because she had the right to make the choice whether to stay or go. Students of color do not have the right to make the choice. Her walking out showed frustration, not only of her as a white person, but of many people of color. And I kind of think that, that, that if somebody didn't walk out, that it really wouldn't articulate what we want to do every day. We all want to walk out. 
We all want to get away from the problem, but we can't. You think she's learning anything in the hall? Probably not. Probably not. Did she choose then not to learn? Yes. Yes, because the learning situation is not one in which she feels comfortable or in which she feels secure. So what does she do? Leave. The pressure, the pressure, pressure. It gets to them and they walk out. And the point was made that brothers and sisters of color, we can't walk out. Where are we walking to? So there's a strength in us, brothers and sisters. There is a power, spiritual in nature. We can, I heard Abby Lincoln say this, the late great jazz singer, Abby Lincoln say this. She said, black people, we can absorb all the energy of the planet and still survive. And that's true right there, brothers and sisters. Okay. We can absorb all the energy and still survive and not only survive, but create create from okay judy says amen create from create new <laughs> new forms new ways of being absorbing all that toxic energy and we survive and create from it we are bad read my angelo's poem ain't we bad we are bad right so my final thought it on reminds me let me just wrap this up dante then i'll come to you for your final thought okay my final thought on this whole question of education and indoctrination is this education is what reverses real education is what reverses indoctrination. So we have to go through the school system. It's what we do. There are others of us out there trying to change the educational system and we're going to do that work. In the meantime, we have to go through it and we'll go through it. At the same time, we have to read other things. My main point, and we'll talk about this next week. My main issues with my brothers and sisters and y'all know I love you is we don't read enough. We don't read enough. I can tell when you start talking how much you've read by the way you put sentences together. That's really what white folks mean when they say, oh, you're so articulate. What they're really saying is, oh, well, shit, you done read some books that I've read. You know some words that I know. Because I look at some of these young brothers and sisters in my family, my nieces and nephews and stuff, and I look at some of them and I go, oh, my God. I don't understand anything that you just said. I do not understand your texts. I don't understand. We need to read more. I'm all for education. I'm all for going through the system. But if you don't, get a library card and read. Read. It is so important. And read widely. Read beyond the walls of whatever your religious theology is, whatever your political philosophy is. Read beyond the four corners of that. That's how you get rid of indoctrination. By reading beyond the corners of whatever education you have received. Not that it nullifies what you received, but it adds something to it that enlarges your perspective. What does the Bible talk about? Enlarging your territory. That's education, enlarging your territory, your consciousness, your perspective. When you don't do that, when you just stay within the corners of whatever theology or doctrine or education you're getting, you're limiting yourself. I'm speaking for myself. This may have nothing to do with some of you, but some of you hear what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Brother Dante, your final thoughts on what we've talked about today. My final thought is we've been talking about education versus indoctrination, but I want the listeners to go beyond, to piggyback what you're saying, just in the school system, educating in terms of life, educating in, in, in your religious um, thinking. There are so many that I'm, I'm speaking from growing up as a, as a preacher's kid. You were taught something one way the entire time because that's what the pastor said, and, and because your pastor didn't say it, 
you didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. So until you started getting studying for yourself and you started hearing other persons that had just as much insight that gave a little more round, well kind of perspective or what, what you were actually taught was actually wrong. So you have to have an openness and a willingness to unlearn to be in, indoctrinated and to, under, to have that critical thinking. There's nothing wrong with being critical in thinking. With it. Sometimes we've been taught that it, to challenge it is something wrong. No, it's nothing wrong with it. If it's going to in, empower you and if it's going to better you and going to enlighten you to make you a better individual and a better individual to yourself, to, uh, your family and society, that's what's important. If it's going to cause you detriment and harm, then you stay away from it. So knowledge is key, but expand it beyond just the school system, expand it in all aspects of your life. Amen, brother. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is to question everything you think you already know. That's the starting point for wisdom. Question everything you think you already know. We'll leave it there for this week. I'm so grateful for our guest earlier, our special co-host, Ms. Judy Martin-Coles, who was with us. I'm grateful for Brother Kyle Coles that was in the chat room with us. Thank you, Ms. Jacqueline, for adding some special texture and comments in the chat room. Really appreciate you. Really, really appreciate you being here. We're going to continue this conversation next week. I want to talk about education next week again, too, but eventually we're going to talk about maybe two weeks from now. I want to talk about white privilege. So we're going to do a show called hashtag white privilege. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. And I want to bring in some comments. Like I played some clips today. I'm gonna play some clips from brother Tim wise, who is a white man who speaks more openly on white privilege than I've ever seen any white man speak on in my life. So we're going to get into that. Maybe not next week, but maybe two weeks. Give us some time to do some homework on it. But I appreciate everyone who's listening today. I love you. I thank you for your attendance here. I thank you for your thoughts, divine in nature. I thank you for your presence. I can feel the energy. And Dante, I thank you for being here with me as always. I want you to tag out with that tagline. I like so much. And then I'll say something. Then we're out of here. Love from your heart. And not from your head. Woo! Love from your heart and not from your head. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, I'm Robert Wesley Branch. Robert Wesley Branch. Be well, be encouraged, <laughs> and be inspired every single day of your life. Bye. As we walk along the path of life, we have some questions, have some doubts. What's my purpose? What's my dreams? What do they really mean? Just calm your mind, ease your fears. The answer is very near. Just listen to the words I say that will help you on your way. Be well inspired.